thank you for listening to the weekly message at First Baptist Church in Bushland, Texas. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank all of you. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Cindy and I started coming here about, I guess, about a year ago or so. I met Pastor Jeff when I was running for the State Board of Education, and uh, he was on the, the Bushland School Board, so I came out here and was visiting with him, really imp- impressed with him. And then I heard that Paxton uh, was leading worship out here, and I've known Paxton for a long time. I used to kind of help with an association of churches um, and Paxton led worship there, and he's also led worship at my cousin's church over in Oklahoma. So kind of felt like we were coming home, and it's really been a blessing for us. We joined in February, and uh, we had to check the picture back there to see what, what that date was, but, uh, but we joined in February, and we've just really enjoyed it a lot. I've got a message this morning that I'm kind of excited about. Just so you know, though, I, I'm a politician and a lawyer and a preacher, so it's probably a good thing you had that extra hour of sleep. Um, before you came here today. Uh, but if you would, turn in your Bibles to uh, John, the, the uh, sixth chapter. It's the, the sixth chapter, excuse me, the eighth chapter of John. I've got some of this coming up on slides, but not all of it. But what I want to talk to you today about is a, is a message that I entitle, um, How Jesus Responds to Sinners. How Jesus Responds to Sinners. And what we're going to talk about today is... Um, we're going to look at three different instances in the Gospels where Jesus has an encounter uh, with, with people. In, this, in all three instances, it happens to be women, not that women have a corner on that market. Certainly, it could have been any one of us as well. But whenever Jesus has an encounter with these, these three women, and, and what it shows us is how our Savior responds to those who come to him broken and discouraged and in need. And um, I think we can apply this lesson, these lessons, uh, not just to those who are, quote, sinners, but to any of us who sometimes get off the path, right? Sometimes kind of move out there where we're, we're really not supposed to be. And if we look at the truths that I think we're going to see during the course of, of this number, hour, hour and a half that I've got with you this morning... Um, just kidding. Paxton told me when I'm supposed to be done. Um, but as we look at these truths, um, I think what we're going to see is that we have a Savior who's approachable. We have a Savior that can, that can know our needs and, and will respond to those needs, whether we're a, quote, a saint or a sinner, either one. So you're there in John, the eighth chapter, um, hopefully. And, and so let's begin to read and, and follow along with me. It says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Thus they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. And I want to stop just a minute. We'll finish this passage in just a second. But I want to stop. Commentators, if you read and study different um, Bible scholars or whatever, a lot of them speculate as to what Jesus was doing whenever he knelt down on the ground and began to write with his finger there when this woman was, was caught in adultery. And it is all speculation. I mean, some say that, that he was writing the sins of those men that had brought this woman 
caught in adultery and that he, you know, they were reading their sins there because we all know here in a minute that they all turn and begin to depart, right? Some commentators, and again, it is speculation, some commentators say that he was just taking a moment and kind of gathering himself so that he might respond appropriately and kind of giving them time to recognize the gravity of the situation. But I have an opinion about this based upon the context that, uh, and again, it is speculation, but it kind of makes sense. It kind of fits, and, and it's this idea. They came to, they, they brought this woman, and they're in the outer court of the temple. It's called the Court of the Gentiles, okay? But we, ha- we know that because women aren't allowed into the next level or anywhere else beyond that. So it has to be in that first outer court. There were a series of courts in the temple until you ultimately got to the Holy of Holies, which were which was where the Ark of the Covenant in the old days was kept. But this is in the outer court. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. And so we know that the floor upon which they were standing was a stone floor. Okay, We know very specifically how the temple was built, that there were stones that were handmade and were inlaid into this, into this court of the, uh, outer court of the Gentiles. And so what I think we see is this idea of Jesus kneeling down and taking his finger, right, and writing on the stone floor of the temple. And they're confronting him. They're asking him, well, what does Moses say in the law about this? And so the context is the idea of God the Father writing out the law on the stone tablets and delivering it to Moses on Mount Sinai. So you've got this picture of Jesus representing the Father, right? stooping down and with his finger writing, I believe, speculation, my opinion, it fits, he starts writing out the Ten Commandments, essentially. He's writing out the law. And here's this woman caught in adultery and all these people that are trying to to condemn her under the law. And Jesus kneels down and begins to write out, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Right? Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not bear false witness. He begins to write this out. And so these self-righteous Pharisees who are really just trying to test Jesus, just try to catch him in in some type of predicament like this, these self-righteous Pharisees look down and they see the Son of God writing out the law. And they begin to recognize that under the law, no flesh is justified. Under the law, nobody lives up to that standard. And so Jesus then says, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Right? And they look and they see that under the law, they are in in sin as well and are not without sin. And it says they turn and they all begin to depart. Right? Because under the law, no flesh is justified. So then Jesus turns back to the woman, right? And he says, and I think we do have maybe this on a slide. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Women or woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The first response that we see from Jesus in this first instance is he extends grace instead of the law. He doesn't condone the sin. He urges a change of direction 
but he extends grace to those who are in need of grace. When I was a kid, I was 9 or 10 years old. I grew up in Portales, New Mexico. You guys probably are aware of it. It's a famous place just over, over the line about two hours from here. Portales, New Mexico. My dad had the cattle auction over there, the livestock auction. And I always say my dad was an auctioneer. My mom was a woman, so I can talk real fast, okay? Um, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm growing up in Portales, New Mexico. I'm a 9 or 10-year-old kid. And what we would do on, on Saturdays or Friday nights, whenever it was, Mom would take us kids up there and drop us off at the Tower Theater, which is the only movie theater within about 50 miles all around that part of the country. And so I remember one time, I was about 9 or 10 years old, and we went to see The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Now, I've, I've realized this, that title may just go right on by a bunch of y'all, but any of you might. Anybody remember The Ghost and Mr. Chicken? God bless y'all. Some people out there. Don Knotts, who plays Barney Fife, okay, for those of you who don't know the reference, Barney Fife on uh, Andy Griffith's show, and if I have to explain who Andy Griffith is, then forget it, this is going to go right on by. But Don Knotts is this real kind of nervous guy, and The Ghost and Mr. Chicken was this movie about Don Knotts, his name was Luther in the, in the movie, Don Knotts is visiting this haunted mansion, the old Simmons mansion, and the story in the movie is that at midnight, the ghost of Mr. Simmons would come back and he would begin to play on the organ. Okay, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Scary, scary movie for a kid. And so he began to play. And so the idea was that Luther, Don Knotts, was going to catch Mr. Simmons, the ghost of Mr. Simmons, in there. Well, during the course of this movie, Don Knotts, who's this real nervous guy, he gets up and he tries to tell the town council and tries to tell all these people what's going on in the old Simmons mansion. And there's a heckler in the back in the movie who keeps going, boy, Luther. You guys remember this? boy, Luther. And so in my prepubescent adolescent mind, I thought it would be real funny if during the tense part of this movie, I yelled that out in this theater. Okay, go figure. And so I'm sitting there, and it was a tense part of the movie, you know, everything's going. And so I decide this is the moment. And in this crowded theater in Portales, New Mexico, nine or ten-year-old kid, I holler out, boy, Luther! Just in time for the usher to come walking beside me. And in those days, movie theaters had ushers, kids, and they had a flashlight. And they would shine that flashlight on you if you were overdoing something you weren't supposed to be doing. So this usher comes, and he shines the flashlight right on me. And I am red-handed, guilty. He has caught me. He grabs me by the collar. He's this college kid working there. Grabs me by the collar and takes me back and says, we're going to see the manager. And the manager was Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith was this guy that we all wore cowboy hats. Mr. Smith wore like a fedora. He always wore a coat and tie. He was this very proper, very prim man. And I was scared to death. All of us kids were scared to death of Mr. Smith. But I'm being walked back into the, into the office, office of Mr. Smith. And, he, and the guy sets me down and tells Mr. Smith what I did. I'm thinking several things. Number one, I'm going to be banished from the only movie theater within 50 miles for life. I will never get to see another movie the rest of my life. Even worse, my parents are going to be told, Marty cannot go to the movie theater anymore because he hollered out, Attaboy Luther, in the middle of a movie. And so I'm thinking I am in big trouble. But I'm sitting there, Mr. Smith, 
kind of looks at me and says, well, what's your name, young man? I said, Marty Rowley. And he said, so um, did you do what, what my, my fellow there accused you of doing? Did you holler out, attaboy Luther? I said, yes, sir, I did. I did do that. He said, um, now, is that something that you've ever done before? I said, no, sir, I've never, I've never done anything like that before in my life. And he said, well, now, you don't look like the kind of young man that would yell out something like that in a movie theater. And I said, no, sir, I'm not that kind of young man, no. I'm, I, that's not me at all. I don't know what came over me. And he said, well, you know, that disrupts the enjoyment of the other moviegoers. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I know that. He said, well, I tell you what, let's just do this. How about if we agree that you don't ever holler out in a movie theater again and you go back in there and enjoy the movie? And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I will be the best movie patron that you have ever seen. And to this day, I've never hollered out in a movie theater since then. I've never done that. But what I saw in that experience, right, that personal experience, was Mr. Smith's same kind of response to a young 9-, 10-year-old boy that was guilty as he could be and Jesus' response to us, right, whenever we come to him and say, I messed up again, I did it again, Lord, and he knows it already, but we come to him, we confess our sin, we say, I've been struggling with this. I've been trying to get it right. I've been trying to do it over and over again. I deserve condemnation. I deserve the law being thrown at me. But, Jesus, I just come to you now in my discouragement and my brokenness. And what does he do? He extends grace and mercy to help us in time of need. So the first response that we see whenever Jesus, whenever, whenever sinners come to Jesus, is that he doesn't condone the sin but he doesn't condemn the sinner. Praise God for that. So the second instance then, as we're looking at another time when Jesus responded to a sinner, is in John 4 when he encounters a woman, a Samaritan woman who's getting water from the well. You can turn to this scripture as well. It's John 4, verse 5 is where we're going to start. You probably know this story as well. John 4, 5 said, it says this, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, Well, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay? Here's this woman in sin, living with a man, 
having been divorced no less than five times, and Jesus gets to the heart of her circumstance in a five-minute conversation. In his omniscience, in his all-understanding, Jesus knows exactly what it is that this woman, woman is dealing with, and he cuts right to the issue. He says, you know, if, if whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of water I'll give him will never thirst. And, but the water I give will become in him a fountain of water springing into everlasting life. He's saying this, you are thirsty for intimacy. You are looking for that relationship, that intimacy of relationship that gives you that sense of belonging, that gives you that sense of completeness, that gives you that sense of fullness, but you're looking in all the wrong places. What you're trying to do is to satisfy the need of relationship with all of these men and presumably in all of these sexual relationships. And Jesus is saying, you have need of a Savior. You have need of living water. You have need of receiving and partaking of that which I have to give to you, which is the Holy Spirit, by the way. You have need of that. And that's why you're looking for love in all the wrong places. He said, you're dealing with symptoms here. You're not dealing with the root cause. And so when Jesus sees us coming to him with these symptoms that we're dealing with, he recognizes that it's really a root cause. When he sees us looking in all of these different places for intimacy, for belonging, for self-worth, he says, you can't find that anywhere you're looking. The only place you're going to find that is in a living, intimate relationship with me. And anyone who drinks of me out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Out of his belly will flow forth the Spirit. And that's where we find fullness. That's where we find fulfillment is if we come to him. See, the thing that we see here is that in responding to sinners, Jesus goes to the source of the problem and addresses our innermost need. He doesn't look at the symptoms. I experienced this one time in my life. It's been probably 15 or 20 years ago now. I, uh, I smoked cigarettes. I started smoking when I, was, when I was in college. And I had a roommate that smoked, and, you know, it looked cool whenever he did it. So I smoked Salem menthol, worst-tasting cigarettes. Don't, you, don't try them, of course, but if you did, they're the worst in the world. Salem, Salem menthol cigarettes. And so I thought it'd be cool if I started experimenting and trying that. You know, we'd be sitting around the, the house there. People come over. So I started smoking. Pretty soon I got hooked. Sure enough, bought my first pack. And then after that, bought my first carton, you know. And so I, I was a smoker. Smoked for about 10 or 12 years. And by the time we started having kids, this is probably about 1986 or so, you know, I was feeling real guilty about smoking. I was a deacon at the Assembly of God Church. I ate mints and put brute cologne on any time I was going somewhere so people wouldn't know that I was a smoker, tried to, tried to cover it up, felt really guilty. There was a guy down in Plainview that would minister to people. I'd heard about him through some, some friends that, that would minister to people uh, with regard to addictions and, and those kinds of things, and you'd just go visit with this guy, and he'd pray for you and pray over you and kind of give you counseling. So I drove down to Plainview, wanted to get rid of, get rid of smoking, quit smoking. So I go down there, and I, I go in and meet with this guy. He was a funny little guy, uh, kind of gray-headed, and had this kind of little scroungy dog that sat, I remember, sat on his lap the whole time. And I just thought, how strange. But anyway, he starts, he starts 
<laughs> has nothing to do with this message, just a random thought. But anyway, so so we're sitting there, and he goes, well, Marty, why'd you, why'd you come see me? And I said, well, because I want to quit smoking. I've been smoking for 10 years or so. I'm deacon in the church. feel guilty. We're having kids. not supposed to smoke in the house. You know, all kinds of reasons. Not good for your health. I, I need to quit smoking. And he goes, uh, well, he said, Marty, you know, smoking won't, won't make you go to hell. It'll just make you smell like you've been there. That's what he said. And I said, yeah, that's kind of right. Except I use brute and mint. But anyway, so, um, so he said, yeah, just, just make you smell. I said, tell me, tell me what, how you feel, you know, when it is that you start smoking. And I said, well, when I really get stressed, when I really get frustrated, you know, that's when I really, really want a cigarette. And he said, well, I think we're dealing with a symptom here. I don't think we're dealing with the root cause. And I said, really? I just want to get free from smoking. He said, well, let me ask you this. Um, In those stressful situations, whenever you're feeling frustrated, do you ever turn to the Lord and ask him to relieve that stress? And I said, no, I usually light up a cigarette. And he said, well... How about going forward next time when you get in that situation? How about if you pray to the Lord about whatever it is that's going on? How about if you begin to ask him to take that stress and to take that frustration away from you? I think, Marty, we're not dealing with a smoking issue here, he said. I think what we're really dealing with is a trust issue. The fact that you won't trust the Lord to take care of your job take care of your family, to take care of your money, hello, and instead you get stressed and frustrated and sometimes angry about those things, and you try to satisfy that. You try to pacify that by smoking. So I said, why don't we just pray about that? And then I'm going to give you a prayer that you can pray anytime you get that feeling and you get that urge, and, and I think you'll be better. We prayed about it. He gave me the prayer. Sure enough, I quit smoking after that. Didn't have the need. Still work on the fact that sometimes I get frustrated, sometimes I get stressed. But I recognize that when I come to Jesus as a saint or a sinner, when I come to Jesus, he responds to my innermost need. He doesn't just deal with the symptom. He doesn't just deal with the habit. He deals with the fact that we need an intimate relationship with him. Okay, So that's the second thing that we see. Jesus responds to our sin by addressing the underlying cause, and that's what changes our lives. Amen? Amen. Good. We're coming in for a landing here pretty quick, all right? Third and last way Jesus responds to sinners is with love and forgiveness, okay? Pastor Jeff introduced this lady to us last week, as a matter of fact. In Luke 7, Jesus' encounter with the woman who washed his feet with her tears and wiped her with her hair. Luke 7, 39 is where we're going. We're not going to reread the entire story. Uh, Pastor Jeff went over it last time, but you'll remember this was the woman. Jesus was reclining at the table in the, um, in the home of Simon, and this woman comes up and begins to weep great tears over his feet. She wets her, his feet with her tears and then anoints his feet with a, an expensive jar of alabaster perfume, and then she begins to wipe her feet or his feet with her hair. And you'll recall at that time that Jesus said to her, and we do have a slide, after teaching the Pharisee about how much she receives forgiveness because she's in need of so much forgiveness, he says to her, says to her in verse 48, this is Luke 7, 48, said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, 
Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This story, I think, more than any other, sums up how Jesus responds to us as sinners, right? When we come to him in our brokenness, we come to him in our discouragement, we come to him out of a need to be set free and to be cleansed from sin. So I don't know about y'all, but, but I know there's a lot of times whenever I try to bear these things myself, when I try to carry my own burdens, when I think erroneously, that I've got to get everything right in my life before I can come to Jesus, right? That's like saying you got to take a bath before you can take a shower, you know? Just doesn't make sense because we come to Jesus whether we're saved or unsaved. We come to Jesus in our brokenness. We come to him in our discouragement. We come to him in our frustration. And yes, we come to him in our sin. And we need to recognize and understand that he welcomes us with grace rather than law. He knows the very core of who we are, the very essence of what it is that we're dealing with. And he deals with those issues at that level, not just the symptoms and at that level. He doesn't condone the sin, but he doesn't condemn the sinner either. And then finally, when we come to Jesus and just come to him and say, Lord, I've sinned, I've fallen. I, I just don't know what to do from here. He extends to us love and forgiveness. His mercies are new every morning, every day. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can famine or pestilence or sword or tribulation? Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. So it doesn't really matter where you are right now. As I look across this congregation and I see many unique different folks in a lot of unique different situations. It doesn't matter where you find yourself right now. If you turn to Jesus, you can be guaranteed that he's going to extend grace to you, that he's going to help you deal with the innermost problem that you have, and he is going to extend love and forgiveness to you right there where you are. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and we'll just pray and close off. And if I could have the prayer uh, teams, the the Prayer folks, come forward, please. That'd be good. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name right now. I thank you so much for your word, Lord. I thank you that, um, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to ex- as the ultimate extension of grace toward us. Lord, you, um, you sent him to die on the cross to open the way to a new covenant, a covenant of grace and a covenant that, um, that enables us to come boldly to your throne of grace. Lord, this morning there's, I'm sure, a lot of needs that are represented here in this, in this group. Lord, a lot of them we've tried to handle ourselves. A lot of them we've tried to work through. A lot of them we've dealt with the symptoms and not really gotten to the crux of the issue. But, Father, this morning we just want to come to you. We want to bring our burdens and extend them to you. We want to allow your Holy Spirit to begin to flow in us and through us so that there might be living waters, Father, that that, um, accumulate in us and go forth to others. And we thank you for these things. Give us the boldness and the strength, Lord, to admit our need for you. And we thank you, Father, that you receive us in the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand.